Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 15B, an interview on James Buchanan. I'm excited to introduce a new element to the podcast today, interviews with presidential scholars. I'm not sure how often these will happen yet, if we'll get one for every president, but it is a delightful way to explore some of these presidents in a bit more depth than I do in my narrative episodes. My guest today is Thomas Bolserski, scholar of early American history at Eastern Connecticut State University and author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. If you listened to the last episode of APH, you heard my take on James Buchanan, a Pennsylvania congressman, senator, and secretary of state under President Polk, and then president in his own right on the eve of the Civil War. Buchanan is the man who was president when Southern states started seceding after Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860. William Rufus King is a name that has not come up on the show, but he was an Alabama senator, an American minister to Russia, vice president to Franklin Pierce, and a longtime roommate of James Buchanan. Uh, King and Buchanan lived together for 10 years and neither ever married, prompting quite a bit of whispering back then and some suspicions today that Buchanan may have secretly been our first gay president. And this is very much the focus on bosom friends. Uh, So today we'll talk about Buchanan, his legacy and his sexuality. And uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Real excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here, Kenny. Of course. So why do people think Buchanan was the nation's first gay president? It's an excellent question. It's one I also get a lot and comes up in uh, conversations I have with folks every day, whether they're interested in history or not. And it's because there is a widespread popular understanding of James Buchanan as being a gay president, as being gay and being a gay president. And it's really that popular understanding that, quite frankly, got me intrigued into researching the topic further. So I want to say at the outset that the bug that's built around James Buchanan may come from a, a, a source that is less than good historically in terms of what the research actually bears out, but has been very good and productive in terms of bringing interest to our nation's 15th president. And so as I can, as I as actually stated in the outset of the book, I want to be clear based on the research I've done. I want to be as transparent as possible. And no, I don't think Buchanan was our first gay president. And when I do talk to people, when I when they do hear that conclusion, uh, they're often disappointed, but sometimes they actually want to hear more. So can you elaborate on that? You know, the, you mentioned there is this buzz. Everyone just assumes it. Why do they assume it? Is it just that that roommate thing, the unmarried thing, or are there other things that people tend to point to and say, wait, what about that, man? You know? Right. And I think there is a, there's a lot to be said about the surviving evidence itself. Uh, it's not without good reason that we look at the relationship between James Buchanan and William Rufus King and find, quite frankly, examples of intimacy and particularly intimacy among unmarried men in this period where sexuality and particularly homosexuality as a concept was still nascent. It hadn't really been defined and it certainly hadn't been pathologized or made into a, uh, some kind of deviant condition, uh, which it later would. So yeah. it's an era where sexuality itself is in flux and where the surviving evidence is sketchy. So it's it's for that reason, it's almost like it titillates, I think, a modern audience to wonder. Yeah. And whereas today, in, in, in we're in a world where uh, gay people, LGBTQ people are out and proud and can often you know, be representative of uh, our society in ways that now we have a 
our first out confirmed uh, secretary of a presidential cabinet, Pete Buttigieg. And indeed, it was his historic candidacy that drew some more attention to my work as well. But not in the 19th century. The truth is that prior to really gay liberation, prior to uh, the period of the gay rights movement in the 20th century, most gay people uh, found themselves in the position of the closet, being repressed, Mm -hmm. not being able to express their sexual identities and to truly uh, be their full selves. And so historians are doing the work of finding and reading the tea leaves, of finding evidence Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. points to the possibilities of same-sex attraction. So therefore, when there's even a possibility that there is uh, po- that that some person doesn't fit the norm when somehow they aren't yeah. uh, fitting that 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 normative married uh, man and wife situation. Now our our entire focus is well, then surely then something must be off. And and so right. it, it's like this. It just one leads to the other. And again, this is almost without most people without even looked at any looking at any of the evidence without really looking at uh, anything else. All they have to hear is bachelor. All they have to hear, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's as simple as that. And, and yeah. actually, again, I don't mind the leap of conclusion because I think skepticism and I think mm-hmm. the impulse to ask questions around um, the facts and evidence are really appreciated in this case. Awesome. And you just honor so many stones. I'm going to pick up and we're going to look at those together. I'm really excited to talk about all this. The, the one I want to jump to next, though, is, you know, you just kind of told me why people think he is gay. Why do you think he isn't? <laughs> Yeah. And, and so this gets into being a historian in a way. And I, I have to say, I, I teach college. I work with students every day. And one of the things I insist upon in uh, the kind of standard of evidence is to not fall victim to simply a working hypothesis. So you don't want to go into an archive and say, I'm going to find the smoking gun mm-hmm. points out one thing or that, that points out what I'm trying to find. And in the case of James Buchanan, it's like saying, I'm going to find evidence that proves the point that he's gay. Yeah. So rather than working from the, the suspicion that James Buchanan uh, was attracted to men, I instead work from the, the opposite point of view, that instead we almost need to go back to the moment where historians weren't asking these questions and mm. read the evidence in light of this what we know to be the 19th century a world of male friendship. And so what I also found, this again is counterintuitive, is the very fact that there were rumors circulating about the relationship of Buchanan and King pointed to me that had been conceptualized as something significant politically. And Mm -hmm. that's the point here. And that these rumors then became a way of trying to undercut the political strength and standing of Buchanan and King. And I think what got lost in the translation over the years is historians took the rumors and the gossip that was circulating by their enemies and opponents and took it as the literal truth. That's I, I love that approach of the, uh, let's not just look to verify what we think. Let's attack that null hypothesis. You know, let's advance that and look for, for to see if we can disprove this thing. But you talked about those rumors that existed back then. How prevalent was that? You know, how widely uh, bespoken was it that, hey, this looks funny? It's interesting you asked that because Buchanan and King first became uh, connected in the Senate only in the year 1834, when both men were well into their political mm-hmm. lives. And that's when they formed this boarding house relationship that brought them together and brought them into the same domestic sphere while they're together in Washington. And yet we don't see any kind of gossip or rumors emerge until 1840. 
And I think wow. that's really significant. It's not immediately sort of uh, suspicious or uh, causing people to raise eyebrows. What it when it becomes more into the focus is when each man is trying to advance politically on the national level. And really some of the harshest and most revealing gossip comes from the year 1840, mm-hmm. um, when in that year, the contest was on to see who would then be the vice president mm-hmm. uh, nominated, uh, with which would go into the 1840 election with Martin Van Buren. Yeah. And then it comes up again, and this is where it gets even harsher in 1844. This time Van Buren has lost and he is going to try presumably to run again to come back after having lost the election. Mm-hmm. Is that familiar maybe to your listeners? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and you know, Van Buren then is the presumed nominee. So what's happening in January of 1844 is something of a who should be his vice president. This time it's really up for grabs, whereas really it turned out that he was going to stay with his vice president in 1840, Richard Mentor Johnson. And this is where we get a letter from Sarah Polk. Really, it's from Aaron Brown, who was a Polk operative in Washington, and to Sarah Polk, who become, we know, becomes first lady under James Polk, and is there pushing her husband's candidacy for vice president. And it's Brown who uses the language. Mr. Buchanan looks gloomy and dissatisfied, and so did his better half until a little private flattery and a certain newspaper puff, which you doubtless noticed, excited hopes that by getting a divorce she might be set up again in the world to some tolerable advantage. And that's a sort of interesting line because he's talking about the relationship of Buchanan and King and the fact that they were politically an entity. But he uses gendered language, Brown does, to Sarah Polk, again, which is interesting because you hear you have an elected politician talking to the wife of another politician who almost certainly we know would circulate that gossip and would circulate the rumors about Buchanan and King among the ladies of... Uh, Tennessee and those whom she knew within that circle. And so it's really that. It's really those comments. It's also uh, entries in diaries and in private letters, sort of Mm -hmm. one-off comments. And what they have in common is they're looking to attack Buchanan and King and to sort of bring them down. But what's, what's almost more telling and what they didn't know was in fact how intimate their actual relationship was the, the nature of their letters and correspondence. They could not have known mm, what yeah, good point. sharing. Yeah. And now historians are able to look back and, and sort of, and read against it and say how accurate really was that gossip? Uh, and to what extent <laughs> was it ultimately a misrepresentation of their relationship? And, and I want to ask real quick about that Brown letter, because, you know, back then it seemed fairly common that you would write a letter to someone knowing it was going to be published. You know, like uh, I think Polk and Van Buren, you know, they all did this around the Texas issue. Was that a letter that was meant to be published or was that a private letter? That was actually marked confidential. <laughs> uh, so it was and, definitely and, published. Just kidding. That, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and not only that, you know, Sarah Polk doesn't have many surviving letters. It's really interesting. Oh, the Polk yeah, papers yeah. are fast and, and have been made into a number of volumes. But in the Polk papers of the surviving letters that were that Sarah Polk has, there's very few. And this is one of the very few that she saved too. Oh. So I, I think it's really interesting why this letter even survives um, and yeah. why it was that it, she held on to it for so long. That's really cool. Um, so, so as these rumors start to come out, you know, and you mentioned it's around politics, around political moments is when they really come out. Did they have an impact on Buchanan's ability to be a political leader? You would think that 
if if there were rumors and gossip, if there were harsh remarks circulating, that it would have an impact because then the assumption is, since the implication is of homosexuality, which itself is um, is not accepted, we might say within the mainstream, yeah. using again the word anachronistically here, that, that, that it would somehow bring down Buchanan's career. But again, that's the whole point. This is an era where that concept, where yeah. the notion of same-sex attraction isn't pathologized. And if, if that's a historical understanding, that if it's still, um, it's understood and it's like the, the, the act of attraction is there and as, as well as the behavior, but it's certainly not publicly displayed mm. in a way that uh, we now, of course, have today. So that would suggest, therefore, that these rumors are almost brushed aside because they couldn't mm. possibly be true. For if they were true, it would go down a path that's so destructive and damaging to these politicians that there could be no recovery. And that's really more the case what you see in like the 20th century, particularly the episode known as the Lavender Scare after the, the end of World War II into the beginning of the Cold War, where actually there were, were uh, men working in the State Department who were yeah. in fact yeah. gay and who were uh, taken and caught in the act, so to speak, and then were fired from their positions. You know, the evidence is so weak against Buchanan and King in this sense. There isn't actually concrete uh, evidence to suggest this relationship, but instead what the, what the gossip does is it figures them in that way. So it imputes rather than, and impugns rather than actually sticks. And so the gossip doesn't stick. Buchanan is, is sort mm -hmm. of able to completely move beyond it. And it, there's, it, there's no way in which his political career was impacted uh, by this gossip. In fact, What's, what's more the case is that the relationship with William Rufus King itself elevated his career and gave him his rise to power. And I want to talk more about that in a second. But before I do, I'm just kind of curious. You talked about how just the gay identity was so different back then. So what, what was it like? Like if, if you were a politician, say, who, who generally was homosexual, did you just have to leave that deeply closeted life? Was it don't ask, don't tell? Were they secretly having a really great party that we just don't know about? You know, what, what was that experience like back then? Yeah, I think the kind of way to th think about 19th century uh, same-sex attraction is that for some people, sublimation as a concept is very powerful. And historically, going back millennia, we know this is how institutions deal with this impulse to deal with the sexual attraction. It's not for nothing that, for example, in the Catholic Church, priests are required to take a vow of celibacy. Mm -hmm. And it's to essentially remove that element from uh, their day-to-day -day life, or at least to rather channel it into other, mm -hmm. other things. And I think for people who found themselves attracted to the opposite sex in the 19th century, it was to recognize that because that would probably be as far as it got. The, the, deeply, <laughs> the deeply suppressing forces of the closet yeah. brought you to probably a realization of how you felt for another a person of the same sex, and yet you would never act on it. And so bachelorhood does, is in fact a good way to mark that, the so-called confirmed bachelor, the lifelong bachelor. Mm -hmm. It's a really good historical inquiry to make to see uh, what, what is the cause of, of, their, of their bachelorhood Mm -hmm. And on the face of it, I would say, if you have a man, a lifelong bachelor in the 19th century, uh, who had every means at his disposal to marry, but doesn't, it should raise the question mm -hmm. uh, as to why. And I think in this case, I actually think there is one of the two between yeah. King and Buchanan, yeah. who is in fact attracted 
to men and in fact attracted to the other man. Yeah. And I think what makes this story even more complicated is that it's a one-way attraction. Hey, well, let's go down that path because I, I wondered if that would come up. Reading your book, you definitely uh, do come out, come down on the side thinking William Rufus King was probably a homosexual, probably very suppressed. Can, can you just elaborate on that and eat, like what dynamic would that have played, you know? Yeah. Yeah, William Rufus King again, like Buchanan, never married, but unlike Buchanan, he never really engaged in courtship or romance with women. And he wasn't comfortable mm. in the company of women. Now that's very much the opposite case of Buchanan, who was uh, engaged and Coleman, the engagement was broken yeah. and pursued women throughout his lifetime. With King, you find him finding reasons to complain of his bachelorhood to other men, which Buchanan did too, but he does it in these histrionic sort of terms that really suggests he's uh, really battling for himself the significance of his life because he's not fully satisfied. He really was not, um, I think, fully actualized, you might say, in yeah. that department. And it's something that um, left him, I think, fairly bitter because he looked at Buchanan, I think, as someone who could be and fulfill mm -hmm. for him that role. Uh, even if there wasn't a sexual element to it, that there could be this intimacy between them uh, that would be sort of the merger between the personal and the political. And at every time it seemed that King would try to move closer to Buchanan, it was almost as if Buchanan put up a wall yeah. and kept him at arm's length. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to mention this again. Folks should read your book because there really were some letters in there, you know, from, from King to Buchanan that was like, oh, this is kind of like sad. You, you, you see him really kind of putting himself out there and it not being reciprocated. Uh, but so the next rock I kind of want to pick up that you mentioned is the impact King had on Buchanan's political career. Uh, and, and especially, you know, they spent so much time together. Buchanan was a guy from Pennsylvania, from the North, you know, someone who you would have expected to be pretty anti-slavery, you know, and King, of course, was from Alabama, someone very pro-slavery. What impact did King have on Buchanan's political views, especially toward the South and slavery? Um, hopefully everyone just listened to the episode on this, but in case you didn't, you know, Buchanan did quite a lot to advance the uh, slavery cause. He did. He was the last slaveholding president, you might say, um, mm -hmm. to, to have slavery under his watch. I mean, Lincoln, of course, is elected to a slaveholding republic, but will do more than any president in American history to end it. And um, his view of slavery, Buchanan's, that is, comes out of this uh, mix, I might say, in Washington, D.C. as a congressman, where he found himself sort of naturally tending towards Southerners in the boarding house and within the Democratic Party. So both those things operated simultaneously. By the time Buchanan and King do meet in the 1830s, the Jacksonians are fully in control of the party and really the political future of the nation. And one thing that the, this coalition party that the, the Democrats were by the 1830s did agree upon was that the institution of slavery must be protected and not only protected where it is, but where it could expand. And it's the issue of the expansion of slavery that is where the union will founder on the rocks of secession. But at the same time, Buchanan was brought to be a much stronger advocate of the protection of slavery because of his relationships with Southerners. King, I think, is the formative one. It's the mm -hmm. one where he meets at, at the beginning of his Senate career and will take several actions during his time in the Senate to protect slavery, whether it be giving pro-slavery speeches 
or supporting the gag rule to, to throw out abolitionist petitions mm-hmm. uh, or in or supporting um, uh, compromise measures down the road or rather legislation that would uh, in fact protect slavery by extending the Missouri Compromise, mm-hmm. which would have given more territory ultimately to the South. Um, what Buchanan was against though was disunion. I actually think it's sort of one of the problems of interpretation because secession happens and because he's considered weak uh, in the response to it, that you would, that somehow he's okay with the actions that take place. And, and, and mm, it's not, yeah. that's not it at all. It's just that his union was a slaveholders union. And that's the union he had grown up with. That's the union he'd come to know and value through his political relationships. And when that union broke apart, he was truly at a loss as to what to do. So very much a, a man of his times kind of argument. He was. And not only that, I should say, Pennsylvania, although it was the free North, to your point, didn't, Mm -hmm. when James Buchanan was born in 1791, slavery was still legal. Yeah. Would be put on the road to emancipation, but the Buchanan family did in fact own a slave Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he, in a domestic capacity. And so he benefited from an, from an early age, from a relationship to an enslaved woman. And in the boarding houses, when he would go to Washington, that's the South. I mean, slavery yeah. is legal in DC. And yeah. he also benefited from enslaved labor all through his time uh, in Washington. Okay. So zooming out a bit to, to something hit on earlier, this big macro US history picture on homosexuality. It, it's common to think, especially nowadays, as history is this march toward progress. As you mentioned earlier, you know, just last year, we had our first openly gay presidential candidate win a caucus when Pete Buttigieg won Iowa. Are American attitudes toward homosexuality a steady met- march toward progress and acceptance? Or has this been more of a roller coaster? I do think that... Uh, we like to think of American history as being a march of progress. It, it's a useful way to kind of make ourselves feel better about the Very setbacks much. we might be living through. Because we, we, no matter when we uh, we're alive in our in our lifetimes here, there's always a way to conceptualize the present as stormy. Mm-hmm. And history does provide some context, and history does provide some help here. Um, I think that it's the case that. Uh, the, the LGBT rights movement is relatively recent and by that standard has been one of the most successful identity-based rights movements in American history. And to a degree more so even, I think, uh, than the comparative civil rights movement has achieved its goals faster and more solidly yeah. uh, in, in a shorter period of time. So it is, a, it, of all the uh, social movements that one could look at, this is one where I think the pace of progress really is promising and, and it's one to celebrate. I think marriage equality being instituted as quickly as it was is mm-hmm. beyond the expectation of people who uh, were laughed at 20 years ago at the concept of same-sex unions and, and gay husbands. So I think that on the one hand, uh, this is a great time, frankly, and it's mm-hmm. the best time to be, I think, an LGBT person living in the United States today because of all the rights and protections. Uh, and so it's not to say that um, there haven't been setbacks and that there aren't battles worth fighting. But I have to say, this is a movement where I think many people who are part of it are really, uh, really happy and proud of the achievements. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I have one last question on the sexuality front. And that's, do you think we've had a president who was anything but 
straight as you know traditionally defined? And if so, who would your money be on? It's an interesting question. Uh, gay historian Larry Kramer wrote uh, a long book of American history where he conceptualized sort of uh, g- gay people as driving the narrative. And he uh, calls out several presidents he he thinks to be gay, and he's very yeah. he's very very uh, clear and specific about it. And he calls out Franklin Pierce, and he calls huh. out Abraham Lincoln, uh, and he calls out some other folks as well. In fact, for him, there's always a gay angle. So that's <laughs> one extreme. That's really one extreme is Larry Kramer's view. Well, of, is, is Buchanan in his book? Does he agree oh, with well, you? It, it's it's almost goes without saying, and yes. <laughs> But uh, the more and of all the presidents to receive attention, although Buchanan is is I think unfairly or rather I should say incorrectly, sure. uh, figured as the first new president, uh, Lincoln of truly has had more attention to his friendships and his relationships yeah. with other men, perhaps than any other president, because again he's gotten more attention than any other president. Yeah, and, and there are there's a very strong case uh, for Lincoln's attractions to Joshua Speed. And to that being a significant sexual component as well, as as well as there's uh, evidence of his attraction to uh, soldiers at, at the uh, at the soldiers' home in Washington D.C. Really? when he was president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's some uh, there's some incidents that suggest he uh, went to bed with one of the soldiers at the soldiers' home. This um, wasn't in the biography I read. <laughs> no, it doesn't always show up. But again, because it's how you read the evidence, yeah. sharing beds was very common. Yes. So, Lincoln and Speed slept in the same bed for three years, but of course, the big piece of evidence as to why this is suspect for from this historical perspective is that this it went beyond the period where each man could afford a mattress. Ah, you know, yeah. So they chose to live in that way. They they enjoyed it and they were comforted by it. And then the question is: in that period of, of bed sharing, did they ever was there ever an erotic component? And and that's where just the evidence sort of ends. There's no there's nothing more right. to say about it. Yeah. Um, but but we do have that. We do have them in the same bed at the same time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. There, there's a couple of breadcrumbs there. Um, cool. So uh, moving on from the, the sexual history and the history of homosexuality, I'd love to talk a bit more about Buchanan, the political history and his role for the Civil War. You mentioned some things earlier I certainly want to dive into. Because, you know, if, if people know two things about Buchanan, they, they know, you know, he was gay, <laughs> but they know he was the president before the Civil War. So the top question I get about him is, is this, was Buchanan a hapless victim of events or does he shoulder some blame for the Civil War? It's a good question because blame is on our minds right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It is. And we are a society that I think has lost some of its patience for the nuance and the complexity of events. And uh, in the sense that we blame James Buchanan for the for causing the Civil War, I, I wouldn't say it's as uh, fallacious as that, but it's close. We blame him ultimately for his leadership in the period of secession, and we hold him to a standard that is unrealistic. It, it, it is the case even that Lincoln's own administration in the first month after taking office more or less continued Buchanan's policy sure. yep. uh, and did not w- wish to uh, cause any further aggression or um, reason for the Upper South, those Upper South states to secede. Yep. So Buchanan is hapless. That's true. <laughs> but he's also stubborn. He, he, yeah. he was very sort of ideologically fixated 
on a kind of conservative reading of the Constitution that led him to think the executive, to say nothing of the legislative branch, had any power over the actions of the sovereign states. He had he had bought enough into this Jacksonian theory of what we generally just call in shorthand states' rights that he understood the union more as a compact. And his limitations in that regard uh, come, I think, from his long experience of compromise and working with very different views of North and South. He understood that union itself depended on that compromise to the slave South. He couldn't imagine a union that was uh, transformed. And frankly, mm-hmm. Lincoln, I think, was f- not there yet either in 1861, transformed by four years of war. Totally. And yeah. therefore transformed by this profound and unfathomable, frankly, to most uh, change that is com- the complete abolition of slavery. Buchanan does live long enough beyond the Civil War to see the transformations wrought by the 13th and the 14th almost amendments. So he's seeing the world being turned upside down, and he's very much opposed to it, and he uh, supports Democratic candidates and very racist standpoints in the, in the mm-hmm. post-war years that he has remaining. Uh, and at the same time, he was a unionist. He he supported the war. He never spoke out against the Lincoln administration, unlike yeah, Franklin yeah. here. I may point yes. out. He was very quietly retired in Wheatland uh, and, and had his hand where he could more in, in democratic politics in Pennsylvania. So when you sort of look at him as a character, he's not, really, he's not a tragic figure. I don't want to go so far as that. Yeah. But he's a figure that uh, I think we need in our in our narratives of American history to dump on. <laughs> We absolutely need a James Buchanan to kick. Um, and we kicked him real I love that. hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So there's one thing you mentioned that I want to jump into real quick. And that's, you mentioned, you know, he was a pro-union guy, but he was hung up on this Jacksonian states rights thing. But when South Carolina tried to secede, you know, Andrew Jackson was like, let's call out the army. Let's do everything we can to stop that. And, and Buchanan certainly didn't do that. So where do you think that split happens? If, if he's thinking I'm a, a Jacksonian man, but I'm not following Jackson's playbook. Yeah, and this is where leadership comes into play. Buchanan was a weak leader on this issue of um, really executive action. And that, mm-hmm. again, is his view of a limited executive. Compared to Jackson, Buchanan is far less robust and executive and, and uh, takes fewer actions, you might say, that would show a stronger executive, especially around maintaining order. That being said, he does send the army to Utah uh, in an episode to attempt to put down a Mormon insurrection yep. that he that he worried about. So it, it's it wasn't that he wasn't above deploying the army. He wasn't a pacifist. It's that when it came to this specific issue, he had he had come down very clearly that the South's right to secede, although he he did not really want it to happen, uh, was not something he would sort of force by violence to end. And that's a big difference is that the commitment to the union that Abraham Lincoln brought with his uh, in the Republican message is mm. night and day from what the Democrats in 1860, the Democrats were so uh, willing to compromise with the South that famously in January, February of 1861, there is something called the old gentleman's convention or peace convention that brings together a number of retired you, uh, public statesmen who attempt to pass a series of constitutional amendments that they felt would uh, secure the South's place in the union. And, and out of that convention comes a proposed 13th amendment. And rather than ending slavery, the proposed 13th amendment <laughs> would 
institutionalized and protected forever. A little, just slightly different from what we got, you know? Um, okay. So when you, when you look at Buchanan's presidency, what are the actions or decisions that you point to and you say, yeesh, oof, yeah, that probably made things worse. You know, like what were his biggest mistakes? I think the biggest mistake gets back to his handling of the secession crisis, because again, we wanted, I think as, as historians now, we cannot help but see the path that Lincoln brings to uh, challenging secession and going to war as being the correct path. I think that's the thing. I mean, Buchanan and so many at his time were anti-war and they were against it and they lived through it and they had their reasons for not being in favor of, of fighting the war and of ending slavery. And today, I don't think you're going to find many historians who come down on that line. We're, we're so we're so much pro uh, sort of Lincoln and his actions that we see any vacillation and any weakness as being... Um, Exactly that. And in the Buchanan case, probably the one episode that uh, most specifically demonstrates his worsening of the crisis was how he met with the uh, commissioners from South Carolina who were sent to him mm. by the secession convention to essentially negotiate the exit of South Carolina from the Union. And Buchanan sort of sat there and did not really object in a, in a strong or strenuous way so, so that he gave the impression that he sort of tacitly uh, mm. accepted secession when he did not. Um, mm. Mm. And his cabinet splits over this. You see uh, Northern members of the cabinet resign in protest and in anger. Yep. Mm. Uh, and then you also see then Southern members of the cabinet resign when it becomes clear that no, Buchanan wasn't going to let uh, this happen. Uh, that is to say, he wasn't going to support it, I should say. Um, yes. <laughs> and in fact, he did try to resupply. He did. He yeah. did try to resupply yes. Yes. Uh, Fort Sumter with a supply ship that got shot at and turned around. So that also angered Southerners in his cabinet. So he really, like Lincoln, the thing is, he could not. He could do no right. But the difference was, he wasn't willing to do the to the to take the next logical step, uh, and that is to uh, fight to keep the South from seceding. On, on the flip side of that question. When you look at his presidency, are there any actions or decisions that you point to and you say, okay, that made things better? You know, that was something that did help cool heads. Well, Buchanan is ranked among our worst presidents. <laughs> and so looking for something to give him credit for can be difficult. I mean, from the very first day of his presidency, his inauguration, he, in now in retrospect, in his speech, revealed an improper involvement with yeah. the passage of the Dred Scott case. So let's not yeah. forget this man from beginning to end uh, made blunders of his own making and indeed worsened many things. But there's one area he's generally given okay marks on, and that is his foreign policy. Mm. Um, and he didn't have too many chances to, to utilize it, but one of the, I think, maybe overlooked but important episodes of the Buchanan presidency is the visit, visit of Prince uh, Edward Albert to the United States in 1860, the eldest son of Queen Victoria and the heir to the throne. Uh, this is the Edwardian period that follows the Victorian. And the young prince came and had a, a sort of a welcome reception by the Buchanan White House, as did his entourage. He then traveled around the United States and so forth. But 
Buchanan had been minister to England during the Franklin Pierce presidency and had helped at various points to resolve issues as they came up, as one case happened in Central America and Nicaragua. Nicaragua. And he also um, played a hand in promoting foreign policy that was pro-slave friendly, particularly the Ostend Manifesto. So Buchanan was a seasoned hand at diplomacy and at uh, smoothing relations wherever he could with mm-hmm. European powers in particular. And he knew many of the, the the rulers of the day through his time in England. So the question is, did the, did the United Kingdom ultimately not side and support the Confederacy for whom it had yeah. a very uh, sympathetic view yeah. uh, because of the good working relationships that it had 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 as well, of course, we don't want to discount Charles Francis Adams over as minister to, sure, to England sure. under the Lincoln administration. But it's just a way of saying that by maintaining the good working relationships with, with the UK, hmm. I think there's a read here that uh, at least Buchanan didn't make anything worse. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We'll, we'll give him credit on that one. Did not make things certainly worse. And that's an interesting angle. They, they thought that his positive relationship with Great Britain helped create a foster relationship nation to nation that uh, kept England from uh, endorsing the Confederacy, which totally, yeah, that was definitely a big concern uh, early on with Lincoln during the Civil War. Um, if someone were to remember three things about Buchanan, what three things would you recommend? All right. Now, this is a 2021 answer, Kenny, so bear with me. <laughs> All right. One, he was never impeached. <laughs> yes, true. Two, he attended his successor's inauguration. Hey, that's very big of him. Very good. And three, he retired quietly and loyally opposed Lincoln and was never heard from again. I like that. I like that. That is a very, um, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, that is the kind of passive aggressive fact that I've gotten used to hearing uh, around here. Folks are very good at those little passive aggressive things. Um, What lesson in leadership can we learn from Buchanan? Again, 2021, stubbornness will only take you so so far. If you truly are deluded enough to believe one thing when it is so obviously not the case, you're going to fail as a leader. Flexibility is key. I, I reiterate the idea that Buchanan's stubbornness is, I think, that the, one of the defining characteristics of his life and his commitment to a strict interpretation of the Constitution is one of the political ramifications of that yeah. stubbornness. He wasn't willing to see... Uh, I guess, the situation as it was. And he tended to um, instead want to allow things to kind of play out and not take decisive action uh, right away. And in the the process, he would not allow better ideas or better solutions to be forthcoming. And so he was a fairly limit, he was very limited, I think, ultimately in his scope as a leader. And that is a lesson for us to learn from is that, don't follow Buchanan's advice. Instead, you have to, uh, when it's one, when you when it's time to make a tough decision, to make it and stand by it. Mm-hmm. And two, to recognize that where you, the people you lead are and make sure you have their backing because the North mm-hmm. was absolutely behind uh, opposing Southern secession and disunion. Mm-hmm. And they wanted a, a leader in there to do that. But the South, of course, was frankly, ready to leave and mostly in favor of disunion. And rather than sort of seeing that his role was to stand by the legitimate constitution, the legitimate union of states and, and really take those next steps, he instead too much gave credence and respect to 
to treason, treasonous insurrectionists and rebels. And it's not, uh, it's not, it, it, he will never be able to recover from that, I think, in terms of his qualities as a leader, because um, everything else he did, you might say is a Franklin Pierce or a Millard Fillmore. But when it comes to secession, he's in a category all his own. Uh, yeah, I had a good. It's funny you mentioned those other two. When it comes to stubbornness, like the whole 1850s, it's like Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, just a bunch of stubborn guys. All right, I got one last question for you. I've really enjoyed this chat. My my last question for you is beyond the debate of what Buchanan did right or wrong. How did he change the presidency? What is Buchanan's mark on the presidency? He liked to say he was the last president of the United States, and. <laughs> He did. That was one of his favorite lines. Um, and what he meant, of course, was he was the last president of the old union, of the union before the war in which North and South existed in the terms it did. Mm. And he was also, therefore, the last really of the uh, the Democrats to be elected in those same terms. So he was mm -hmm. the last of the Jacksonian Democrats elected. The next Democrat elected president is in Grover Cleveland. And by then, that's a totally different generation yeah. of Democratic Party and it's one uh, that that pushes different issues. And I think reform comes to mind as where the party is moving and certainly integrity and honesty and a number of other characteristics that differentiate the, the 19th century Democratic Party later from the early Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And so he's the last Democrat of this old two-party system of which uh, the, the, the Democrats had been the leading party and that the Whigs had come into opposition and then the Republicans came along and ultimately broke the Democrats in half. Yep. And one last thing, and I think this is, uh, you know, I think about this as significant sort of turning points in the generational uh, shifts in American history. James Buchanan is the last president born in the 18th century. And as a result, uh, he is the last president to, I think, truly try to imbibe a view of the founding that um, reads the Constitution in a way that commits it to its old, uh, its old and original intent of supporting slavery, and uh, he um, is the last president before the uh, passage of a major constitutional amendment that shifts the entire ground of what the presidency is and what really the the party battles will be about for the next century or more mm -hmm. over the question of race. So those are some things that kind of make him stand out. But in many ways, he was just a, a caretaker president in terms of the powers and the responsibilities. He did add a little bit to the White House. He was the one who built the, the large greenhouse, which um, is off to the West, which has now been replaced by the West Wing. Uh, so he was the first president to add a major addition to the Western part of the, uh, the White House itself. And um, in terms of how he also left a mark, I want to point out that he's the first president in his post-presidency to write a presidential memoir, Mr. Buchanan's oh, Administration yeah. on the Eve of Civil War, yeah. famously written in the third person, <laughs> uh, which, which, uh, which did it. And, and as a result of his, um, his strong, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not distaste, but his, his strong feelings he elicited from Congress. He was the last president to have the franking privilege uh, as an ex-president, I What's should that? say, meaning he was able to send and receive mail for free. He didn't have to use postage. <laughs> and so they okay. took that away from all future presidents for more than a century. They could get <laughs> Take <family>. that. <laughs> and finally, as if insult were not added on to injury, he was the first president 
to be to be discussed seriously about being censured uh, in his post presidency, and that was that came up here uh, as we talked about what can Congress do to a former president, but they can do something else, and and this is this is the example truly that we need to end on. Congress refused to pay for James Buchanan's official portrait. I love that ending note. Thank you, Tom. This has been a delightful chat. Really enjoyed it. Uh, to all my listeners, a reminder, uh, Tom wrote Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. It really is a very uh, strong, deep dive into those two, their relationship, the impact they had on each other. There's so much material there that we didn't get to. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, thank you so much for joining, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me here, Kenny. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Thank you again to Professor Thomas Belserski for joining the show. In our next episode, I can't believe we're here, Abraham Lincoln will examine how a simple one-term congressman who was born in a log cabin became one of the greatest presidents in U.S. history. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.